Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today we continue on in our Revelation series called God Wins with a look at God's response to suffering in Revelation 6 and 7. And now, here's Tom with that message. God's response to suffering in our God Wins series. Some surgeries and procedures do not necessitate the patient being put completely out, but rather uh, being put in what they will jokingly call a some kind of a twilight zone where you are awake but don't necessarily remember, or so they say. <laughs> well, late Monday night, when they finally got around to setting my uh, shoulder, putting it back in, in place, uh, they told me they were going to put me in one of those twilight zones, and they said, now you'll, you'll hear things and you might feel, feel something, but they said, you won't remember any of it afterwards. <laughs> I talked to them throughout the procedure. I remember the guy uh, on the one side taking my arm and wrestling with it as the other one's held down my body. And, I, and like an hour later, I said, I can still remember who said what and everything, you know. But the point is, that's the background of what I'm about to read you. It's one of my favorite get well cards I ever saw and it's intended, I guess, to be sent to someone before or after surgery. And it's simply entitled, Things You Don't Want to Hear During Surgery. Okay? These are things you don't want to hear the, the staff say while you're being operated on. Hand me that, uh, that uh, sharp thingy. How about this one? Cool! If I poke here, I can make his leg twitch. Oh no, there go the lights again. All right, more things you don't want to hear during surgery. Hey, page 47 of the manual's missing. Or how about this one? Everybody stand back. I dropped my contact lens. <laughs> and finally, you do not want to hear the surgeon or the surgical staff say, Spot, come back with that bad dog. You know, surgery, it, it, it can be bad enough, but that would really be added suffering, wouldn't it, to have something like that? But sometimes you just have to laugh in the midst of suffering. Surgery, uh, lost my place here. As I said, sometimes you just have to laugh in the midst of suffering. But you know, there is a far more lasting solution to dealing with suffering than just laughing it off. And that is to read a certain book that I would like to recommend that was written specifically to help people deal with suffering and to offer them hope. And I'm going to give you the title of that book if you'd like to write this down. It's the book of Revelation. <laughs> That's the book that was written to help people deal with suffering and to offer hope about the future. Let's not forget the context of the writing of this book, as we said in the first sermon in this series. Christians in particular were suffering a great deal at this time of around 90 A.D. <clears throat> now, Revelation 6 and 7, our text today, offers images of earthly suffering through the centuries blended in with glimpses from God's perspective in heaven. I think that's what we see in Revelation 6 and 7. So whether the problem is war, like we're all watching now in Eastern Europe, 
or cancer or persecution or losing a friend. These two chapters help us see the big picture. They help us see beyond what we may be suffering or experiencing at the moment. It helps us see the working of the hand of God, and it urges us to hang on. In these two dramatic chapters, I want us to take note of three important things about suffering, and they're the main points on your outline today. And the first, you'll say, well, I already knew this, but I'm telling you anyway. <laughs> suffering is part of this life. Suffering is part of this life, and that is because we live in a sin filled and sin-cursed world. Jesus, in John 16, and one of the last things he said to his disciples right before they came and arrested him and it set in motion all the crucifixion and everything else, one of the last things Jesus said in John 16, was, in this world, you will have trouble. Or some translations say you will have tribulation. And that thought is echoed in Acts 14, 22 by some of the apostles on a missionary journey where they told a group of Christians, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, those prophecies came true over and over in Bible times and they came, have come true over and over throughout the ages since then. Last week in Revelation 5, we noticed how the chapter opened up with a vision John was being shown. It's just simply a vision. And in this vision, he saw this scroll that had writing on both sides. And as I said last week, it probably represents uh, God's unfolding plan. But then it goes on in those first four verses and says, you know, basically no one was found that was worthy enough to open that scroll. But then in verses 5 and 6, and we saw this last week, it says this. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, circled, or standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. If you could put that picture up there, Kayla, I love this image of an artist of Jesus as both the lion and the lamb who was worthy to open the scroll. But what's fascinating, I didn't really even think about this after I was done with the sermon until I was getting ready for this week, is basically he never does open the scroll in the rest of chapter 5 because they're so amazed and they fall into worship and they bow down before the lamb and keep singing to him all through the rest of chapter 5 because he's worthy of opening the scrolls. Well, then the very next scene comes in our text today in chapter 6, verse 1, and Jesus the Lamb finally begins opening the seals one by one on this scroll. He says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. Now, I'm going to put another image up here too because we're going to be hearing reading about Four horses, and I know it's kind of hard with the lights we require up here and everything else, but there's four horses, and we'll describe each of them uh, beginning in verse uh, 2. If you go too low, my bad eyes won't see anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right, here's the first seal, the white horse, verse 2. It says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, one of the long-time accepted interpretations of this white horse and the rider is that it's representing Christ himself. 
Because after all, all through Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the conquering one. He's often shown as being white, representing purity and holiness. Jesus is on a white horse riding in, in chapter 19, 11. It specifically says that. And then in chapter 14, he's uh, pictured with a crown on his head. But I would like to suggest that I've come to an understanding that I think this means broader than just Jesus here. I think that the, maybe the broader image is more accurate, and that is that this is representing gospel conquest. In other words, Jesus co conquered Satan at the cross and at the resurrection. He won the ultimate victory. But then he continued to conquer as his word spread across the Roman Empire and eventually the whole world. The gospel's message of Jesus Christ was conquering the enemies of God and Satan himself. All right, that brings us to the second horse, which is a red horse that we read when the second seal is opened in verse 3. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Some say this represents war in general, and it might. But I, I would like to narrow the focus a little bit on this one, and I think it could very well represent bloody persecution. Because if you think about it, this was the biggest problem for the Christians in 90 AD when these things were written. The biggest problem was persecution. Jesus himself had said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Do we have that? Yeah. Then you will be, he's telling his followers, he goes, then you will be handed over to, the per, to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus said something very similar just days later in John chapter 15, uh, going all the way to the end of that chapter and into chapter 16, telling his disciples persecution would come when they followed him. And Jesus' prophecy came true. They were persecuted. And they still are. You see, folks, this horse always follows the white horse. If the white horse represents gospel conquest, in other words, the gospel, the message of Christ is, is having its positive effect in the world, this is always going to follow. See, anywhere Christ and the gospel go, Satan will attack. It's an ongoing struggle. It's been said many times that in the 20th century, in the 1900s, more Christians died for their faith than in the 19 centuries before that combined. And if you haven't been paying attention, I think the persecution has even escalated more worldwide since the year 2000 up to the present. There's a picture of these martyrs, uh, and I'm going to jump ahead just for a minute in verse 9 and 10. When the fifth seal opens, and we'll come back to this later, but I want you to notice again what it says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? John was given a glimpse into heaven to see these martyred saints who were under the altar in heaven, and they're saying, God, when are you going to take judgment on those that have done this? And I think we might have had an image on that, yeah. They represent all who have given their lives for Christ over the years and yet into the future. So see, that battle rages on. 
That battle of the red horse rages on, bloody persecution. It rages on in countries like China. Yes, China, Sudan, Afghanistan, since last year, think about this, since last year has skyrocketed to number one on the, on the world watch list for persecution. North Korea, Iran, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, Nigeria. I can name you more and more and more countries where persecution is very evident and very intense in our world today. You see, the red horse of persecution continues to ride, and that's why I still wear my orange band uh, virtually every Sunday in honor of those persecuted believers. But there's a third seal, and it shows a black horse and rider. Verse 5 and 6. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. My understanding is that this is representative of economic hardship. Economic hardship, it's the image of famine and food rationing. That's the point of the numbers and, and, the, and the things there and the amounts. In other words, at this time, and, and when John is writing, there were a lot of places in the empire where Christians were being treated very harshly and it affected them economically. People were, would cheat the Christians and there would be no punishment for it. People took advantage of them. Mobs would sometimes trash their homes. People would refuse to sell them certain items simply because they were Christians. People would refuse to hire them or they would fire them because they were Christians. Now, in chapter 13, I want to get all the way ahead of myself, but in chapter 13, it ends with that famous little section about the mark of the beast. I believe this is the exact same thing here. And I believe it was happening in John's day. I believe it was happening in the 800s and the 1500s and the 1700s. And I personally, with my eyes, saw the, the concept of the mark of the beast in Eastern Europe in 1977 and 78 in communist countries. More on that later on. The fourth seal. A pale horse, verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following closely behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This pale horse apparently represents death. Hades is simply means the abode of the dead. It's where the dead go, good and bad initially. Death and Hades... So I think this is a reference to death in a more general form, in forms like war and famine and pestilence and wild animals, images straight out of Ezekiel 14, verse 21. So that begs the question that we've essentially been asking indirectly all along, why is there suffering in the world? That's going to be our theme tonight, too, with our video. Why is there suffering in the world after Genesis 3? Quite simply, because of sin. When mankind sinned, the system became distorted and tragedies occur as a result and people are evil and bad things happen. It's a fallen world, Genesis 3 says, and Romans 8 says, and until Jesus returns to redeem it. So therefore there are hurricanes and there are diseases and there are earthquakes and there are floods. 
And add to that the fact that Satan continues to fight against God and his people. You see, folks, the four horses have continued to ride throughout the past 2,000 years, and they will continue to ride. And the result is suffering is a part of this life. It is a part of this life. But here's the second thing we need to notice about suffering. <clears throat> it's very important. And that suffering helps cleanse us. <laughs> Famous Charlie Brown uh, Peanuts comic one time pictured uh, Charlie Brown walking away from uh, Lucy after a baseball game. He's got his head down. He's totally dejected. And he says this, another ball game lost. Good grief. He goes, I get tired of losing. Everything I do, I lose. Well, Lucy, in an effort to cheer him up, says, look at it this way, Charlie Brown. We learn more from losing than we do from winning. And then he says, well, that must make me the smartest person in the world. <laughs> well, not automatically. It can, losing can make us smarter. But only if we pay attention and only if we learn the lessons we should learn during those times. You see, losing and difficulty and suffering actually tend to strengthen us. There's an interesting image that appears three times in these two chapters of white robes. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, Then each of them was given a white robe. Then chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And it says about them, they were wearing white robes. And then verse 13 and 14, uh, These are not white robes. Who are they, and where did they come from? And then it goes on. He says, uh, there are they, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these people in the white robes, they were made white through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I want you to consider something else that may have been going on. Just maybe they became even whiter and purer through the refining fire of suffering in their lives. God cleansed them of their sins through Jesus' blood, but then he made them even whiter because they allowed their suffering to cleanse them even further in their life. You see, suffering does something that's very important. Suffering tends to call us to examine ourselves. Suffering calls us to examine ourselves. When we are suffering in some way, emotionally, physically, whatever, have you noticed how the silly and foolish things of life don't seem to matter as much at those moments? We tend to gravitate to more important things. We look at life a little bit closer, maybe a little clearer. A preacher friend of mine named David Stokes used to preach up at my home church in Hillsborough, wrote this about the intensive care unit. This is a great observation. He goes, on many occasions I have spent hours in the intensive care waiting room waiting with anguished people, listening to urgent questions like, will my husband make it? Or will my child walk again? Or how do you live without your wife of 40 years? He says, trust me, the intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And it seems that the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. They answer phones for one another, bring food for others, know the status of patients for whom, whom other loved ones wait. D distinctions of race and class melt away. A man is a father first. His race is unimportant. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the college professor loves his, and everybody understands this. And then he says, each person pulls for everyone else. 
In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. There is no vanity or pretense. Why? Because it calls us to examine ourselves. Suffering gets our mind off of selfish, trivial things and calls us to examine ourselves. And that's a really good thing. But suffering also does something else, a step beyond that. It prompts us to seek God. It prompts us to seek God. I love this poem, Someone, and I can't attribute it to any particular author. It's called The Savior's Words, as if God is speaking to us in our suffering. Listen to this. If you never felt pain, how would you know that I'm a healer? If you never went through bondage, how would you know that I'm a deliverer? If you never had a trial, how would you call yourself an overcomer? If you never felt sadness, how would you know that I'm a comforter? If you never made a mistake, how would you know that I am forgiving? If you never were in trouble, how would you know that I will come to your rescue? If you never were broken, then how would you know that I can make you whole? If you never had problems, how would you know that I can solve them? If you never had any suffering, how would you know what I went through? If you never went through the fire, how would you become pure? If I simply gave you all things, how would you appreciate them? If I never corrected you, how would you know that I love you? If you had all power, how would you learn to depend on me? And finally, if your life was perfect, what would you need me for? You see, God takes what we view as negative and brings good from it. If we allow him to, and if, if, if we don't give up too soon. If. Romans 8.28 is a familiar verse to a lot of you and a favorite verse of probably a lot of you. Where God says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. He, in all things, God works for the good, and that includes even the persecution of Christians. See, God often teaches his greatest lessons in the school of suffering if we pay attention and if we don't let our suffering go to waste. One of the things I've been praying with my very mild suffering this, this past week, and it's so much less than so many other people, is just, God, don't let me waste this, okay? Don't let me waste this blessing of being able to be in this time because <laughs> there's things I can learn. But here's the good news of the third thing about suffering, and that is that suffering is not the final word. As we said in the fifth seal, verse 9, uh, we're given an image, a, a, a scene, a glimpse of persecuted Christians, martyred Christians in heaven. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. He's saying, okay, just wait, okay? <laughs> Hang in there and wait. Just wait a little bit longer. 
Have you noticed how time does not fly by when you're not having fun? <laughs> to twist an old familiar expression. He says, just hang a little bit longer. Well, then he opens the sixth seal, and you know these Christians have been saying, you know, when are you going to deal with these people who have caused this, God? And in God, in verse 12 and following, with the sixth seal, gives an image of the end of time. And I think this goes clear to the very end of time. And God says, okay, let me tell you how it's going to end. Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks on the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So it's a picture of the end of time, God's judgment. He said, I just want to let you see, I'm going to take care of this in my time. See, God has scheduled a day of judgment for all who have rebelled against him. And as verse 17 implies, you know, who can stand up when he, when he gets going on that? Nobody. Nobody except, except those who don't have to fear the judgment because they're covered by the blood of the Lamb. So there's a sense in which chapter 6 is suffering from the view that we can see now in this life, and chapter 7 is suffering from the view that only God can see in heaven. So we enter chapter 7, and he begins to describe a group of people, and that would be us who are Jesus' followers, who don't have to fear the judgment. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. That seal word is important. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. See, he's just closed talking about the judgment of God at the end of time, at the end of chapter 6, and says, but before that happens, God's going to seal those who belong to him so they don't have to experience that ultimate judgment. See, the four angels hold back the destruction until God marks those who are his. And in that, we find one of the important lessons we need to remember during suffering, and that is, God is with us. God is with us. Verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. See, this harkens back to an image clear back in the book of Exodus on the night of the Passover when the, uh, God made a distinction between those who were his, the Israelites, and those who were not, the Egyptians. And he says, if you'll put blood, if you belong to me, you put blood over your doorposts, and that'll be like a seal marking that this house belongs to God, the Lord God, Jehovah the God of the Israelites. Well, God borrows that image of sealing and marking his people more times in the New Testament. Let me show you three of them. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is one of those, and it talks about the Holy Spirit being the seal he marks us with. It says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now notice this from 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God's sealing the Christians and marking, saying, they belong to me. And now this from Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God was putting a mark of ownership. It's an image of him doing that on any of his people. And he's saying, when it comes time for the judgment, judgment can't touch them because they belong to the Lord God. We, we will see next week in chapter 9, verse 4, uh, an application of this. It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. All right, so we continue on in chapter 7, and I'm not going to read the whole list at verses 4 through 8, but it talks about uh, 144,000 of those who were sealed, and I believe that's symbolic. I believe the listing is symbolic because it doesn't just give the 12 tribes. It, gives, uh, it, it lists Levi, and he's not usually in the normal list. Ephraim's not listed. Dan is not listed. So I think it's a symbolic thing saying these represent the people of God. You're talking 144,000. That's 12 times 12 times 1,000. What's 1,000? 10 times 10 times 10, the perfect cube. This is all symbolic about perfection. And God's saying these are the people who belong to me. Over in chapter 14, we see an application of this that we'll come back to later. But it says, then I looked. And there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There it is. They were marked. They were sealed. Verses uh, 4 and 5, same chapter. It says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they, they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, this, see, this is a contrast, and, and we'll come back to the mark thing, the mark of the beast thing in chapter 13. But basically, with these two images, God is saying there are those who are marked with my seal, and there are those who are marked with Satan's seal. You belong to one or the other. You belong to one or the other, and there will be a separation at the end of time. So what they do after they realize they're in the sealed group verses 9 and 10, they praise God for that salvation. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. God was saying, You belong to me. You, my children. They may be beating you. They may be firing you from your jobs, but you belong to me. You're mine. You do not have to fear the final judgment, and I'll also be with you through the fires of life. Somebody might kill your body, he's saying, but they can't kill your soul. You are marked with my seal of ownership. And if that's true, we have nothing to fear. God is with us. Suffering is not the final word. So he says, hang on a little bit longer. Now, just a quick comment on that expression. Got a nice text the other night, someone checking on me, a good friend from here in the church, who said, I hope you're hanging in there. And it's kind of hard to text back with, with one of my hands at that point not working. So I, I text Sam Young back, and I said, 
Do you realize hanging there is not the best expression to say to someone who fell off of a roof? Because <laughs> hanging there is what I didn't do, see? <laughs> but no, that is a very good message because that's what God is saying over and over again in Revelation 7. He's saying, just hang in there a little longer. Hang in there a little longer. Hang in there a little I got this. Hang in there a little bit longer. Here's the other thing we need to remember during suffering. Point B. God is still on his throne. God is still on his throne. This was our emphasis last week. Look again at, verses, or look at verse 10, and we'll go on down to verse 11. It says, They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. <clears throat> Amen. So guess who's still on his throne? See, that's what God's trying to say in chapter 7. Remember me on my throne in chapter 5? I'm still there. No matter what's going on in Ukraine, I'm still there. No matter what's going on at your workplace, I'm still there on my throne. Fifteen references to the throne in chapters 4 and 5. And here it is again. And one of my favorite statements that I'll probably say in this whole series that I made last week was, there is peace at the throne of God. There's peace at the throne of God. It may seem that up, evil has the upper hand, but God is still in control. He has not abdicated his throne. That was the point of chapter 6 and those daunting judgment verses where God's saying, I will deal with those who fight against me and my people. But that will happen someday. And again, we come back to the martyr question in chapter 6, verse 69, where they're saying, God... Why do we have to keep waiting for you to carry out this judgment? I had that question too. Why doesn't God just deal with those really evil, violent people? Why doesn't he deal with his enemies now? One of the best explanations I've ever read is from Mark Moore in his little booklet called How to Dodge a Dragon from the book of Revelation. He goes, why do we demand of God... Do something about all these evil people in the world. What do you expect him to do? Send a flood? If he does, there are Christians in the middle of it. How about an earthquake? Well, there are still Christians in the middle of it. A famine? A plague? Disease? There are innocent people in the midst of all these catastrophes that strike the earth. He says, God cannot punish the wicked without Christians being caught in the crossfire. Perhaps God could turn the world into a giant video game and just start picking off pagans one by one. He says God could do that, but if he did, some of the unbelievers he would zap would be our family and friends who have not yet come to know the love of Christ. Do you really want God to do that? He says no matter how you slice it, when God wreaks vengeance on this earth, Christians get dinged. That is just part of the world in which we live, end of quote. Folks, God will deal with evil in due time, but it'll be his time and not ours. Until then, he says, uh, hang on, <laughs> stay close to me. And then we have the promise of point C. God will bring a new day without suffering. A new day without suffering. And I, for one, cannot wait till that day. <laughs> 
Verse 13 and 14 says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. I think John was the first politician there. Do you notice that? He's asked this question. He's, he's placed the safe way. Uh, God, you know. <laughs> he's not going to try to attempt to answer it. So God answers it himself. He said, they, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, can I just say, please do not get too caught up or hung up on the word tribulation here. I mean, big T, little t, Jesus said there will always be tribulations. It's one of the last things he said verbally to his disciples. There will always be tribulations and tribulation. But someday those will end. Someday those will end. That's what 15 through 17 says. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. What an image. God put his tent over us. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God is giving a glorious glimpse into heaven itself and the end of, end of time of the, where we can have constant personal access to God in heaven. God with his tent over us. No hunger, no thirst. Jesus will be our shepherd, it says in verse 17, and lead us to the streams of living water. A life free from the tears and frustration and suffering of this life. So God says to us, hey, <laughs> I know it's tough, but hang in there. Hang in there a little bit longer because there's a better day coming. There's a better day coming. During the war between the states, in a battle at a place called Shiloh, the first day ended and it did not end well for the Union forces. The Union forces under our Brown County native uh, Ulysses S. Grant had taken a real beating at the hands of the Confederates. And at midnight, General Sherman, who was central in that battle, met Grant in the rain under a tree where Grant was trying to keep as dry as possible. Sherman was convinced that the only possible course of action they had was to just retreat the next morning. He said something to the effect that the day had been very tough, it had gone very badly, and Grant just kind of nodded and listened. And then Grant said this, he goes, yes, but beat him in the morning, though. Beat him in the morning. Because what Grant knew was something Sherman did not know at that point. He knew that Generals Buell and Wallace were on their way, and they would be there in the morning. And then those who were for them would be greater than those who were against them. And Sherman, indeed, by those extra reinforcements, did beat them in the morning in one of the most significant Union victories of the war. Leroy Lawson, commenting on that incident, said this, it comes down to how you look at tomorrow. And he quotes from Hebrews, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He says, no matter how heavy your load, how huge your loss, how seemingly futile your efforts, how inadequate your personal resources, turn your eyes from yourself and your hurt. Look ahead where God already is, preparing your future, paving your way, getting things ready for your morning. 
He says, remember, he is faithful. His day is approaching. And then Lawson says this. He goes, you may have felt like quitting lately. He goes, me too. But thanks to him who is faithful, we'll beat him in the morning, though. We will beat him in the morning. That's the message of Revelation 7. We will gain the ultimate victory in the morning if we just don't give up. Revelation 17, 17, I love this image. For for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So how do we become part of that victory? Well, verse 14 tells us, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's how we get on the winning team. (laughs) That's how we get on the team that gets saved in the end. We wash our sins away in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as it says on our outline, our only hope, our only hope is the blood of the Lamb. Think of some of those great songs. What can wash away my sin? (laughs) Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we sang a couple weeks ago, we do it as a chorus and a hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So I hope you can come to the point where today, in response to what we've seen in Revelation 6 and 7, you can say, I will hang on, stay near God's throne, and near Jesus' cross. Because, folks, that's where I want to stay. No matter where I am physically in this life or uh, whatever condition I might be in, I want to hang on, and I want to stay near God's throne, and I want to stay near Jesus' cross because there I am safe, there I am covered, and someday we'll beat him in the morning. So we sing our song of decision this morning. I want us to think about where we are in relation to the Lamb, (laughs) Because really, that's the ultimate, the relationship that ultimately matters the most. As we sing this morning, I want us to think about just where we are, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in relation to others and everything else, but most of all, in relation to Jesus the Lamb. And he gives each of us the opportunity, really every day, but we extend an opportunity at the end of each service to just start over... (laughs) in whatever way we need to, repenting and trusting him in faith, um, confessing our sins, confessing that he is the Savior. Um, We can do those things every day. But also a part of initially doing that is burying our old lives in in a water grave that Jesus called baptism, that Paul called baptism, God called baptism. He says you can bury your old life and just put that behind you and rise like Jesus did and have a new life in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.